I saved this question for the last because I think it's, it's appropriate. As I'm moving into this time of sabbatical, as you're going to enter into a time of, of, of kind of focusing on core values and convictions as a church family, I thought this was a, a helpful question to make this transition for us. The way it was submitted is worded this way. Is it time for the next great awakening? Let me read it again. Is it time for the next great awakening? Now, the person went on to ask, is the church ready and willing to do what needs to be done for revival and awakening to happen? Still further, the person asked, as a member of the church, am I willing and ready to do what needs to be done for revival and awakening to happen? Now, these are the questions I want us to think about this morning. And maybe as I read the initial question, you're already a little confused. Is it time for the next great awakening? What in the world is an awakening? Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. And this isn't hard to, I think, explain or to illustrate. Um, what we can observe over the history of the church is there are sadly periods of time where it seems as if the church kind of slips into a state of spiritual slumber or, or laziness. Maybe it's a, a state in which compromise or indifference has found its way into the makeup of the church. And as a result of that, it doesn't seem as if Jesus is accomplishing what could be accomplished or even more should be accomplished through those who know him. And so the term awakening is pointing to a, a particular point in time when it seems as if the church wakes up. That spiritually they rediscover a level of vibrance that allows Jesus to do even more and more through who they are. Through uh, the church local, through the church just corporate across the nation. Now, the question, the way it was worded, presumes that something like this has happened in the past. And if you know a little bit about church history in America, you may realize that things like this have happened. In fact, you can go all the way back to 1730, where it's described uh, as the first great awakening. Where it was even before we were a nation, the 13 colonies, that the churches in the colonies had kind of slipped into that state of spiritual indifference. They weren't being effective. You couldn't really observe that they were making a difference among the communities where they were. And lo and behold, if God, through various leaders, didn't begin to wake up the church, one of the individuals he used was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He became a, a dramatic voice in the midst of that day. But he wasn't alone. You would also uh, hear stories surrounding Gilbert Tennant, as well as George Whitfield and John Wesley. All of these individuals God used to wake up the church. And I'm pleased to report that as God worked through them and through others, the church suddenly began to impact their culture, their communities in a way that they had never seen before. It was, in the true sense of the word, an awakening. But it was only the first 
as you would span the history of the church in our country, about 50 years later, there was what some would refer to the, the start of the second great awakening as you enter into the 1790s. Now, in the 1790s, you had a different group of leaders that seemed to kind of come to the forefront. Uh, some of the, the awakening was happening, and now we were a nation, in the southern states, and it involved what was referred to as the camp meetings, where people would leave their homes and they would gather for an extended period of time just to focus on the Lord and to worship the Lord. And through people like George McGreedy and others, God began to stir the hearts of those who knew Jesus in a way that had not been previously seen. But he wasn't alone. Uh, you even had uh, in the universities, God began to, to stir the hearts of those that knew Jesus Christ. At Yale University, obviously still a, a notable institution of higher learning in our day, their president, Timothy Dwight, who happened to be the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, their president began to challenge the students at Yale. And God began to do a dramatic work across that campus. And he wasn't alone. Later, Charles Finney came into this mix. And what you begin to witness for an extended period of time is that men and women of faith, those who knew Jesus Christ, were suddenly spiritually alert and available. And God began to produce extraordinary uh, changes. By the way, during the Second Great Awakening, the church became a very, very outspoken proponent against slavery. You see, when awakening happens, culture changes. God stirs the hearts of those who follow Jesus to take stands in ways that can impact the culture for the better. I mean, that's the fascinating thing. If you study these periods of, of dramatic renewal, the nation is always blessed when the church wakes up. And in the Second Great Awakening, that was a very noticeable outcome. Still 50 years later, as you move into the 1850s, the Third Great Awakening apparently emerged. Now, it was technically, I guess, around 1857. It started, of all places, in New York City. Can you imagine? And it developed as a result of a group of people praying. Jer Jeremiah Lamphere, he was used of God to simply bring people together, to begin to pray together. And suddenly God began to wake up the church so significantly that it not only affected New York, it affected the whole nation. It crossed the ocean and affected what was happening in England and Europe. By the way, most of the Great Awakenings were not limited to a nation. It, it impacted the world. Now, what's interesting, if you study these events, it seems like it's almost after two generations. You have this high point, two generations pass, and the church is at a low point, and God, in his kindness, wakes the church back up. They're at a high point, two generations pass, and it kind of reaches a low point. So the, the assumption would have been, as you entered the 20th century into the early 1900s, I could be able to report to you the fourth great awakening. Eh, it didn't really come. And another generation came and went, and you didn't see almost the spiritual kind of revitalization within the church happen. Now, let me not mislead you. God was still very much at work. As you move into the 20th century, what you'll observe, it seems as if that the, 
work of, the, of God through Jesus, his son, seemed to reach into other parts of the world more noticeably than what was happening in North America. I mean, in the turn of the 20th century, it's extraordinary what God began to do in the continent of Africa. You probably don't know, but at the start of the 20th century, it's estimated that there were about uh, 9 million Christians in the continent of Africa. In the 100 years that have passed, would it surprise you if I told you Christians in Africa now number 541 million? Uh, there has been an extraordinary work of God through the followers of Jesus across that continent. Even today, there's a, a powerful work that's unfolding. Uh, some of the most recent numbers seem to indicate, on average, 33,000 people are identified with Jesus Christ in Africa today. Now, again, I, I regret, as I report the 20th century in America, we don't see these dramatic displays, but let's not be deceived. God is still very much at work abroad. I mean, even in China, as communism settled in and tried to eliminate any element of faith, guess what happened? Those who knew Jesus made themselves available to Jesus, and there was a movement of God in the midst of communist China that even the communist officials could not slow down. There's millions upon millions upon millions of Christians in China today as a result of God's continuing work. Now, I mention these examples because I want you to know in 2019, we've not reached a point in time where God is unable to work unwilling to work. Maybe though, in terms of our church and churches across our nation, maybe we have reached a point in time where the question that I raised is relevant. Is it not time for those who know Jesus in this nation to spiritually wake up? Is it conceivable that in 2019, just as God worked in 1730 and 1790 and 1850, that God's going to Maybe in a fresh way, wake up us, wake up the church across our nation. Now, if that's of interest to you, I, I guess we should think about then, then what might be necessary for that? I mean, the person did ask, I mean, am I willing and ready to do what needs to be done for revival and awakening to happen? Am I? Well, before you would just answer yes, let me maybe share with you, as you study how God has worked and seems to still be working in other parts of the world, let me highlight with you what that may mean so that you can determine on whether or not you're ready. First, when you study when God wakes up the church or as God empowers the church in, in dramatic ways around the world, what you need to realize front and central is Jesus Christ. That if we're going to experience a wake-up moment, it doesn't happen apart from us focusing on Jesus. I mean, he really is it. He's the key for us. And interestingly, if you study when God has kind of caused the church to wake up in the past, apparently the churches, at least as they slipped into that spiritual slumber, had just kind of become indifferent toward Jesus. 
They weren't talking about him. They weren't preaching and sharing about him. They, they just kind of fell into the motions of church. In 1730, when Jonathan Edwards came onto the scene, what he began to do in his church was to preach about Jesus Christ and the seriousness of our sin so that as a person might turn to Jesus, they could find forgiveness and hope in life in Jesus. See, Jonathan Edwards was concerned that among many of the churches of his day that you had people that claimed to be members but had never trusted in Jesus. And so he preached boldly about trusting in him in our need for a savior. George Whitfield, who came from England uh, and began to, to join Edwards in this effort, did exactly the same thing. Their messages were almost identical. They're, they're preaching to the church, but guess what they're de declaring? You need to trust in Jesus Christ. It's not about showing up for a worship service. It's about believing in him, trusting in him. And God began to manifest among them just a fresh work. And suddenly, the members in the church began talking about Jesus. I mean, they just began to share and, and, and confess. We, we believe in Jesus. And, and as they began to speak about Jesus and preach about Jesus and teach about Jesus, I don't think it's surprising. Suddenly, Jesus began to work through his church. Now, just say all that to say, okay, we want to see an awakening. Then we need to be committed to pointing to Jesus Christ. I mean, I know in 2019, talking about the judgment for sin isn't a very sophisticated message. But you see, it's the message of Jesus that offers hope and power. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at Rome, I think underscores this in a way that all of us should be reminded. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, listen to what he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, here's my concern. Is the church in America today becoming a little ashamed of our gospel? And we hesitate to speak of him as the one who saves if we want to see an awakening, we need to know on the front end, we're going to have to focus on Jesus, talk about Jesus, celebrate Jesus, point to Jesus. He is the source of life. And to share the gospel is the power of that. That not only affects an individual's life, but can affect a community, a city, a nation. So it starts with Jesus. But most of you, it's okay, I'm... I'm good with that. I believe in Jesus. I'll talk about Jesus. Well, then let me highlight a second element that I think will be necessary if awakening is even a possibility. And this isn't going to be as popular as the first one. It involves repentance. That's a churchy word. It's a Bible word. What do I mean by that? Well, when you read in the Bible the word repent, what is really being emphasized is a change in mind that then affects a change in heart that then results in a change in action. That in a simple way to repent is to, as you're moving away from God, you realize that's not where you need to be thinking, see? 
Your heart is moved now toward God, and so you move now in his direction. Well, every time, if you study it historically, when awakenings happen, you know what's, what's exposed is sadly the churches during that time leading up to the awakening had moved into a state of moral and spiritual compromise. They weren't where they should have been. They weren't living in the ways that reflected Jesus' influence in their lives. And as God began to speak through various ones over the course of time, men and women of faith, those who knew Jesus, were confronted with the realization, you know what? I need to repent. I'm not doing what I should be doing or I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. I need to follow Jesus. Incidentally, this this possibility shouldn't surprise us. I mean, when Jesus, in the book of Revelation, wrote to seven churches, and maybe you've not read these letters recently, it's interesting, as he wrote to seven churches, you realize he had to correct five of them? Five of the seven had enough things going wrong that Jesus had to say, hold on here, you need to stop that. You need to relate to me for who I am. Let me give you a couple examples. When Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus, in Revelation chapter 2. Listen to what he says to them. Now, before he corrects them, he, he acknowledges they have some good things going on. But then he says this, and listen to what he says, because I think it's, it's perhaps relevant to us. Verse 4 reads, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Again, the idea is you change your thinking which changes your heart, which affects your action. He says, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, if you think about what Jesus is saying to this particular church, he seems to be saying, you need to stop going through the motions. You need to love me for who I am. I was your first love, your first loyalty when you started this journey of faith. But somewhere along the way, you've pushed me aside. You're still going to church. You're still doing some good things. And you're going through the motions. But where is the depth of love that should motivate you? I mean, is it possible this morning, if you were honest, you've been going through the motions for a while. Just doing the church things, you know. You don't want to disappoint people who think you're a fine Christian, so you just kind of stay with the activities that you think support that. But where is the dynamic of your active faith relationship with Christ? Now, to the church at Laodicea, he writes another church later on. Uh, listen to what he says to them, verse 15. I know your works. It should be stated he knows our works. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. And to paraphrase that, you're useless. I can't use you for anything. Would, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says, this lack of usefulness is nauseating to me. For you, verse 17, for you say, I, I'm rich. I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, 
naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments that you might clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Some point to verse 20 as a verse that is an appeal to salvation. That's not the context here. Verse 20 is speaking to a church that have pushed Jesus, practically speaking, out the door. And so what does Jesus say to them? You need to repent. You need to stop that. Someone needs to hear and open the door and allow me to once again assume what is my rightful place among you. You need to come to the table of fellowship. You need to allow me to be the one who influences you in terms of your everyday life. There needs to be a change of thinking that affects your heart that results in a change of action. You need to repent. I've just emphasize this because if you would like to see God do more, is it conceivable that before Jesus will demonstrate a greater power in us and with us and through us, he's going to first point to some areas of our life and he says, you know, that has no place in your life. Follow me. Relate to me for who I am. Trust me. Is it possible repentance is the thing that's standing in the way of us waking up? And let me carry this further. I would add to repentance an emphasis on obedience. And I only do that, I guess, to kind of drive a lesson home. Sometimes I think in our mind, we think repentance happens in the church service where God convicts us and we're responding sincerely and we're saying to the Lord, now God, you're right, here, I'm agreeing with you. But then we leave the worship service and you can't really observe any change on Monday. See, awakening happens, yes, when we begin to agree with God, but awakening occurs when those who are responding to Jesus begin to follow him in fresh ways. They obey him. They allow him to lead in their lives. The testimony of scripture is relevant to them. They follow his lead. I mentioned that God began to work in other nations at the turn of the 20th century. There was a significant work that happened in the nation of Wales in 1904. It's historically referred to as the Welsh Revival. But it was just astounding at how God began to affect communities and a nation in a dramatic way. And what's intriguing, if you study what the Lord did through the Welsh revival, he just began to speak through individuals in very simple ways. There was a man by the name of Evan Roberts, a 26-year-old college student, that was very instrumental in this. You know what his message was? This is the message that Evan Roberts would share over and over and over again, through which God began to change the nation of Wales. This is what he, he shared. 
I'll walk you through it. Point one, confess any known sin to God and put away any wrong done to others. That's a call to repentance, isn't it? Relate to Jesus appropriately. Step two, put away any doubtful habits. That's obedience. You need to move away from the very things that are disrupting God's work. Three, you need to obey the Holy Spirit promptly. As we're relating to Jesus through his spirit, he begins to prompt us to speak out, to follow his lead. And then fourth, he says, you need to confess Christ openly. There it is again. See, Jesus has to come into the conversation. He is the means of power and transformation. With that simple appeal, the whole nation of Wales was affected. And it changed the culture so dramatically, for a period of time, it affected the industry. Uh, In Wales, coal mining was one of the main industries of the day. And before the awakening or the revival, uh, most of the coal miners used rather foul language in the mines. And when they would use the mules to pull uh, the carts of coal out of the mines, they would, their language was very colorful. Then they came to know Jesus Christ. And their language changed, and the donkeys and the mules didn't know what to think. It took a while for the animals to figure out what they were asking them to do. To me, that's just a a beautiful illustration of how Jesus affects life. And in Wales, it was seen all across the nation. Obedience is required. But quickly, if I may add to that, in the midst of these events, you're always going to find some testimony to prayer. That those who know Jesus begin to pray in a way that God begins to work. Maybe some of the early prayers are prayers of repentance, but prayer is a noticeable characteristic when the church wakes up. And of note, I I think the third great awakening is the perfect example of that. I mentioned in 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere. He was working in the inner city of New York, was troubled by the condition of what he saw around him morally and spiritually. And so he called for a prayer meeting, a 1230 Wednesday prayer meeting. And six people showed up. It's worth mentioning that five of the six came from different churches. So this wasn't just one church. But they prayed. And what did they pray? Their prayer primarily was to pray by name for those that did not know Jesus Christ. They just began to pray for family members, colleagues, workers that have not come to experience the hope of Jesus. Well, they come back the next week and their number doubled from six to 14, 16, Third week, they came back, and the the number uh, doubled again. But then, in New York, they experienced a catastrophic stock market collapse. Ever seen anything like that before? Yeah, we know what that is. But as a result of that financial collapse, there was such an instability in the city that suddenly the prayer meetings on Wednesday began to grow significantly. And as the numbers grew, also the frequency, they went from meeting weekly to beginning to meet daily. 
And again, what are they praying for? They're praying for people to come to experience hope and life in Jesus Christ. And before they realized it, God had begun to stir the whole church. The church woke up. Thousands of people were meeting daily for prayer. And not only in New York, you begin to see similar prayer meetings in in Cleveland, in Pittsburgh, in St. Louis, Chicago. It's as if, as people began to pray, Jesus, through the work of his spirit, began to affect cities. Case in point, I'm going to read an editorial from the New York Times. Now, this is the same paper of record today. This one, though, was printed March the 20th, 1858. So it's been about six months since all of this started. Listen to what the, the editor wrote. The great wave of religious excitement which is now sweeping over this nation is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. The writer went on to add, travelers relate that in cars, steamboats, and banks, markets, everywhere through the interior, this matter is an absorbing topic. Churches are crowded. Bank directors' rooms become oratories. Schoolhouses are turned into chapels. Converts are numbered by the scores of thousands. In this city, of course, we're talking about New York, we have beheld a sight which not the most enthusiastic fanatic for church observances could ever have hoped to look upon. We have seen in a business quarter of the city, in the busiest hours, assemblies of merchants, clerks, working men, to the number of 5,000, gathered day after day for a simple and solemn worship. Similar assemblies we find in other portions of the city. A theater is turned into a chapel. Churches of all sects are open and crowded by day and night. The editor goes on to say, it is the most impressive, it is most impressive to think that over this great land, tens and fifties of thousands of men and women are putting themselves at this time in a simple, serious way, the question that can ever come upon the human mind. And what was the question? What shall we do to be saved from sin? Now, some have estimated over just a a couple of years across our nation, one million people came to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what started that? Jeremiah Lamphere said, you know, we need to pray. We need to pray. And they did. I'm comforted by what I know to be true of the heart of God based upon a simple verse in the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles. See, Solomon had gathered the people of God of old in Jerusalem to dedicate the temple. And in the midst of the dedication, Solomon asked God, now, when we lose our way, when we sin, and then we repent, when we turn back, Will you forgive us? Will you restore us? God answered Solomon's question and listened to God's response. I'm reading from 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14. God's response, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal 
their land. I acknowledge this is God speaking to the king of Israel, affecting the nation of Israel. But what you see in this verse is the heart of God. And I think the promise is profoundly relevant to us as his people in 2019, that if we will respond to God with a heart of contrition, with a heart that pleads for God to work through his people again, I think God will wake up his church across our nation. But prayer, it's there, isn't it? It's necessary. I leave you with the final word, which I think is a relevant one. It's the word faith. I mean, if you don't believe that this is even possible, it goes without saying you'll not pray. You'll not turn to him in fresh ways. But if it's conceivable this morning that you would believe that what I've described for you historically is absolutely still a possibility in 2019? And you move toward God. See, my whole life, I'm going to be honest with you, has been shaped by revival. My grandmother, my dad's mother, at the age of 16, came to faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of a three- or four-month revival in the mountains of East Tennessee. I mean, God settled down in that community over a stretch of time, so much so that her dad, my great-granddad Smith, who happened to be a bootlegger in the East Tennessee mountains, wasn't living a particularly reputable life, was dramatically saved. And his life changed. When I got to know him as a boy in, in the later years, I, I was struck by the genuineness of who he was. But see... That set the course that would ultimately influence my life. My mom's mother, Miss Stutzi in Myrtle, small Mississippi town, she too came to faith in the midst of a revival, a prolonged series of services in Myrtle. Now, she grew up in the Methodist church, was an adult, a Bible teacher in the church, but had never trusted in Jesus as Savior. And see what happens in the midst of, of a revival environment is we point to Jesus, point to Jesus, point to Jesus. She realized she had never trusted in him and was beautifully converted, responded to Jesus. And her life was forever affected. As I would get to know her in the later years of my life, I was constantly blessed and sometimes convicted by the beauty of her faith. And when I look at my own life, I came to faith in the midst of a revival service that my dad happened to be preaching. Now, I say all this to just say, listen, as I look over my life, I don't have any trouble believing in the possibility that God can wake up a church, that God can revive a people. I know he has. And so right now, in my heart, I have no trouble embracing that in faith. The question that confronts me is, am I willing, knowing that, to respond in, to him in ways that allows that to happen? I mean, is it time for the next great awakening? Are you willing to respond to Jesus in a way that he deserves? 
mean, honestly, we can't control what others across the nation will do. But I think we could fairly ask, is it not time for the North Fort Worth Baptist Church to be as spiritually awake and alert as we can possibly be? As we would relate to Jesus for who he is. How would you answer that? Let me pray for us. Dear God, I come to you thankful that we can look back over time and see so many examples of the church waking up. And it not only affected the local congregation, it affected the community, the state, the nation itself. It affected the world. I pray that you would help us now to take an honest look at where we are. Is it possible that we've taken our eyes off of Jesus, that we've drifted off into things that have not only disappointed him, but has disrupted the very thing that he would desire to do with us? Father, in my own life, I pray you would help me as I would enter my season of sabbatical to focus in on a way that you bring me to a fresh understanding and awareness to relate to your son and to relate to you in ways that allow you to do all that you desire to do through me. But dear God, I pray for this congregation that you would speak to each person here today. That they would look honestly at where they are might respond in ways that you would call them out. Lord, help us not to rationalize and to justify staying put. Help us to respond in ways that might wake us up. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.